And this is what the writer Luke says. He says, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and he took his place at the table. And a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and to dry them with her hair. Then she continued kissing his feet and anointing them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw it, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who was touching him, that she's a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he replied, speak. A certain creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. But those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of visiting Australia to connect with a few of our ministry partners. And like it was a really cool Facebook campaign that got this team in Sydney excited about what's happening in India, and Michigan got involved, Israel was involved, China was involved, and it was like this global move to get Bibles into a leprosy colony in India. It was a pretty amazing story. And so it was my chance to go and talk to them about what was going on, and everybody was really excited about, hey, you get to go to Sydney. But nobody was really excited about the fact that it was a super long flight to get to Sydney. And so I went there, it was good, we had a great meeting, and on the way back, I thought, okay, this is a long flight, and I've got to rely on my extensive flying history. So I thought, this is how it worked. I left Sydney at 10 a.m. that morning, and I would fly backwards in time, right? And I would arrive in L.A. at 8 a.m., and then I would fly forward in time and arrive in Detroit at 6 p.m., and then I would fly to Grand Rapids, and that would be good. It was like, if you kids would get this, it, was, it felt like a big dubstep move. Am I? The spirit is moving, I think. right? You guys okay? Thank you. So it felt like this big dubstep move of sorts. And I was like, okay, what I can do though, is I can stay awake the entire trip, right? So that way I come home at like 7 p.m., 8 p.m. at night, and then I can just go to bed like normal people. That would make sense. 
And so that's, that was my plan. This is my brilliant idea. So the flight from Sydney to LA was long, very long, but I survived. And then I got on my flight to Detroit, and that was another long flight. But, you know, I had to really muster up all my courage since I watched a, an extra movie, I read a little bit more about my book, I listened to some more music, but I stayed awake. Landed in Detroit. And then I was like, all right, last trip. Detroit to Grand Rapids. This flight is like 22 minutes in the sky tops, like 40 minutes total. Good. And I sat on my flight, and I'm like really proud of myself for the real hardship I've endured, and I'm like surviving this thing. And then this family walked in, and they had just come back from Disney. And they were so excited, and, and I was like, okay. You know, and the thing is, I, you know, we were those families. We have kids, and so a lot of grace, and I sat. But I'm also thankful for noise-canceling headphones, so I put them on, and I was like... And then, I, and then I said, JP, you can take a nap. It's okay. 20 minutes. You'll be in Grand Rapids. And before the flight even took off into the Michigan skies, I was gone. And, and then the flight thuds softly, right, under the tarmac. And then I was like, I'm home. This is awesome. And then I you know, waited for you know, the seatbelt sign to go off, and everybody's getting up and leaving. And I'm like very patiently waiting for this family to get up and leave. And they take their strollers and the car seats and the whole caravan of things that you bring as a you know, family. And then I get up, and I stretch. And I text Katie's parents, who were supposed to pick me up at the airport. I'm like, just so you know, just landed in Grand Rapids. And they were like, that's so cool. We just pulled into the parking lot. And I was like, you're dealing with a genius here. This is how we work, right? It's going to be awesome. And then I just walked out. And I don't know if you guys have been to the Grand Rapids airport, but there's been a lot of construction going on lately. But I don't understand how construction in America happens because sometimes it happens so fast and sometimes it seems like it takes forever, like the Chicago highways, right? And so I was like, okay... Something is different here because I did not know they had moving walkways in Grand Rapids. And then I was walking by and I'm like, oh, a sushi restaurant. That's interesting. And then there's a flight to Paris from Grand Rapids. And then I was like, this is not Grand Rapids. <laughs> and I turned around and I find somebody, that family, and I was like, what, what happened? And they were like, oh, yeah, like, um, apparently when this genius was taking his little nap, the pilot came back on and announced to the plane that there was an electrical issue in the flight and they were going to go back to Detroit. And so I landed back in Detroit and now I had to take my phone and text Katie's parents and be like, just so you know, I'm actually still in Detroit. I have no idea what happened. And, and I know my wife wishes so much that she was there when all this truth began to dawn on me. Um, and in case you're wondering, this did not help with the jet lag at all. It was probably, the, it took me like six months to get over the time zone difference. Um, I share that story because it's, first of all, pretty funny and humbling for me. Uh, but secondly, I share that story because this passage that I read this morning to you, it's a story that I think we've all heard so much. It has the semblances of a story that is so familiar to us. And yet, the more you look at it, the more disoriented you feel about it. And there's a couple of other things I'll preface as well, because this is one of those stories that in, when you come up on Advent in Luke chapter 2, you'll hear about this guy named Simeon who holds the baby Jesus. And he actually says at this point, this child is destined to be a sign that will be opposed 
so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed. Right? And so now we hear this passage, and it's exactly what Simeon talks about. So here we have this passage. Simon the Pharisee invites Jesus to his home. This story is found in all four Gospels, by the way. But only in Luke's Gospel does the writer take great pains to let you know that Simon is a Pharisee. Now, Simon knows that Jesus is a teacher. He's a respected teacher in some of his circles, the religious circles, but there seems to be controversies that seems to follow Jesus wherever he goes. So I have no idea why he wants to invite Jesus to his home, and yet he does. Maybe he wants to appear magnanimous and generous. So as they sit and they begin to eat, this notorious woman walks in, right? And this woman is famous for all the wrong reasons. And if Simon took great pains to let you know that... I mean, if, if Luke take great pains to let you know that Simon's a Pharisee, he kind of takes the same amount of pain to let you know that this woman is a sinner. And he's setting up the stark contrast because this woman comes into this house like a disease that people have been trying really hard to avoid. She's the kind of woman that if you brush by her accidentally, you'll want to go wash your hands, right? And what you also find interesting about the story is that this woman's cameo here, it doesn't have a beginning or an end. It's almost like she's had an obvious other interaction with Jesus. And that's somewhere subtly mentioned in this text. We don't know what exactly transpired, but she's overwhelmed with gratitude for what Jesus had done. And so she comes into this house where she is clearly not welcome, And while the guests are reclining on these little couches on the floor, their faces turn toward Jesus and their feet turned away because feet are disgusting in Asian cultures. She sits by the only object that she has access to, Jesus' feet. And she's brought this jar of perfume that she wants to anoint Jesus with, but since she can't access his head or his hair, she does what she is able to do, right? And she lovingly pours this perfume on Jesus' feet. And her heart overflows with gratitude. And she begins to weep with this warmth of grateful affection. And her actions, she's trying so hard not to be overt, but they are not subtle. Her tears are accidental, but they're just, I always say, when my daughter Layla began to cry when she was a little baby, you guys, I don't know if Lily does this or not, but she started squirting tears like a cobra. Um, And then it launches this chain reaction. As her tears pour from her face onto Jesus' feet, she does not know what to do. So she uses her hair, which has been let down, which is also a sign of a woman known for all the wrong reasons. She uses that hair to wipe away the tears from Jesus' feet. And as somebody said, Jesus' passivity to all of this is quite eloquent. Simon, the Pharisee, the host, is very embarrassed by all of this. But then again, these sorts of actions were not that unusual. Life was way more public back then. But Luke is homing in on a point over here. The idea that Jesus is a friend to collectors, tax collectors and sinners is a big scandal. And Simon has heard this before. And he repeats this in his head. He criticizes Jesus. If he were truly a prophet... He would know what kind of woman this is, right? I mean, you, 
when I start reading this passage 2,000 years later, I find her actions to be a little over the top, a little extra, as we would say. And Jesus, who until this point has been quite passive, finally speaks up. And he tells this very colorless, direct parable to Simon. And the point of the parable is simply to let the unforgiven Pharisee know about the limitlessness of God's readiness to forgive. There is a beautiful symmetry here between this Pharisee who essentially passes judgment twice, right? Once upon the woman and once upon Jesus, only to be judged for his judgment. The very skill that Simon thinks that Jesus should probably have, Jesus uses that very skill to probe Simon's inner thoughts. And Jesus, in doing so, asks Simon this very important question. He's asking, do you not recognize in this woman's behavior the love of one who has been forgiven so much? Simon is not accused of being impolite. In fact, like I said, he's absolutely correct in his actions. And if I were to use a broad brush, he's doing exactly what I would do and maybe what you would do too if you were in his place. This kiss of greeting, this anointing of oil, these were, of course, ways in which you welcome people in early Palestine, but they were not a requirement. And yet Jesus uses the actions of this woman to be his welcome in this home. And her story, the more you hear about it, it kind of has these echoes of what Paul would later write in Romans, you know, where sin increased, grace abounded even more. And the story then ends beautifully. It ends with Jesus finally speaking to the woman, and he says, your sins are forgiven. Go in peace. And one writer, he actually says, you know, like, basically, faith is seen when there is no break in the pattern of divine initiative and human response by which a restored means to God is established. This woman leaves Jesus whole and rescued She departs in peace. That's the story. And like I said, it's it's a beautiful story. And yet, when you think about it, it's pretty disorienting. This story, like I mentioned earlier, has been mentioned four times in the Bible. And yet, only in Luke's gospel, certain things stand out. Besides the fact that we said we have a Pharisee and a sinner. This is also the only passage where there is no mention made about the poor or about the cost of this expensive ointment. In fact, if you actually listen, read the passage, the, the word expensive doesn't even show up. This is not a passage that hints about Jesus being prepared for his death and burial, or about making a case for the poor, or about extravagant acts of worship. It's just about two things that are very important to look. The first is the idea of Jesus eating and drinking with sinners, the association that Jesus has. And secondly, and more importantly, the different responses that Jesus evokes from people who believe themselves to have been forgiven much, forgiven little, or not forgiven at all. And so, with so much to unpack in this text, I just want to give you two things this morning to think about. The first, as I hinted before, is Jesus' response to this woman. Because his response is absolutely beautiful in how passive it is and yet how eloquent it is. If something like this were to happen to me, it would have me all sorts of uncomfortable. 
And yet Jesus just sits there and lets this woman shower him with kindness in the only way she knew how. And Jesus, in doing so, shows us a unique form of kindness. So a few years ago, and I've shared this story with you before, but I want to kind of give you a different angle to it. Katie and I um, had the privilege of working with a tribal group called the Mundaris. And uh, I've oftentimes shared that story about the Mundaris with our work with audio scriptures. Um, But today I want to give a, a more personal touch to this. The Mundaris belong to what we call the scheduled tribes of India. And these are people who, if you have a social ladder, they are people who are so down the ladder that they don't even qualify to be in the lowest caste. Uh, These are people that you would consider the untouchables, the ones that, um, for all intents and purposes, they're like the dust of the earth. You walk over them, they simply don't matter to the grander scheme of things, right? And, uh, but we had been doing some work with them, and I remember my first visit to them. My, uh, we took Layla, who was about a year and a half old at that time, and we took two train rides and then a long cab ride into the heart of the jungles of Orissa where we met the Mundaris. And to say that this day was amazing would be such an understatement, because as soon as we got to the Mundari field, there was this group of drummers that greeted us, and they led us in this procession into this into this community, into this village where women who were dressed in these resplendent saris and wildflowers washed our hands and our feet. And then we were taken in to a room, like kind of like a stage where they had a table set out for us and they served us a meal. Now, you know, as the food comes on, it's like rice and a chicken curry. And it's one of those things, it's tribal food. And I'm very open-minded, but I'm looking at this chicken in this dish and it's like this stringy, gamey chicken, which had all its parts intact, and you can see it floating in the curry. And, and they served this generous portion to me, and, and I'm kind of like, you know, physically, I'm not making any, you know, I'm not wrinkling my nose or anything like that, but I'm sure mentally I was doing it, because this is just not stuff you're used to. And after I took a couple of bites... I think that's when slowly the exhaustion of travel and everything else starts to settle down. The fog that is in front of you begins to clear and you begin to see where you are and who you're in front of. Because as I'm sitting on the stage and eating, I look and there's a crowd of people sitting in this hall with us. And there's about 250 or so of them. And they're all eating. And um, I didn't pay any attention to that immediately, but as I began to watch what they were eating, I just assumed they were all eating the same food. That was not the case. Because what they were eating was a square, they gave them a little newspaper square filled with puffed rice and some tepid water. That was their lunch. And I'm sitting on stage eating a delicacy that they might have once a year, if not worse. I look around and my little daughter is eating chicken that day. I was afraid to ask my host, when was it the last time these people had any sort of protein in their diet? You know how hard it is to swallow a single bite when you come to grips with that reality? I kept thinking, but, but they should be eating this. I should be eating that. And yet our hosts kept offering us more and more of this chicken, which suddenly tasted like it came from a two-star Michelin restaurant. And as we ate, I had to slowly digest the fact that the kindest thing 
that I could do for my Mundari brothers and sisters on that hot, sultry day in the jungles of Orissa was to eat that meal they had kindly prepared for us. That was the kindest thing that we could do. It was also probably the hardest thing I've ever done. Jesus was radical for a variety of things that he did in his ministry here on earth. The fact that he just wouldn't jump up and tell this woman, wait, 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 why are you doing this? I should be washing your feet, is honestly a bit surprising, isn't it? In fact, he does just that in a few chapters to his disciples. And yet, Jesus just sits there and lets this woman do what she needed to do to honor him. The second observation I want to highlight for you this morning is the woman herself. Because again, the more you think about it, the more perplexing the story becomes. Knowing her profession and her background, she's probably somebody who's never been treated with respect wherever she went. And Jesus is this traveling prophet. So I keep wondering, why did she not find Jesus when he's out and about somewhere where she can be guaranteed his attention, time? Instead, she goes to this place the worst place for a woman in her place, right? The abode of all judgment, a Pharisee's home. She goes there to honor Jesus. But in doing so, I want to believe that she went to own her fear. She owns her fear and her faith is well rewarded because Jesus then uses her actions to describe to us what hospitality looks like going forward. I've come here to you guys for, like I said, maybe over a decade, telling you about what God is doing with our audio Bibles in India. And it's amazing. I always love telling the stories of what God can do. But, you know, it's, I, I was in Florida a few years ago, um, maybe, I think three years ago, was spring break, Easter time. And told them all the stories I've been telling you, and it was great. Two and a half hours eating food, telling stories, and then a lady looked at me, and she goes, JP, I don't mean to be a, you know, kind of a, put a wet blanket on this conversation, but what is the most challenging part of your job? And I thought about it for a second, and I said, you know, honestly, it's, it's having to ration out God's word because we don't have enough Bibles. So when we have a shipment of audio Bibles that come in, as a staff, we have to determine, well, how many do the Mundaris get this time? How many do the blind get this time? How many do the lepers get this time? How many do the Garasias get this time? And we have to decide who gets how many. And there's just such a huge need and we don't have enough Bibles. And I've told this all the time. I always tell people, I feel like that boy and I've got five loaves and two fish and I'm staring at a multitude. And so people are like, they hear the stories, they hear the need, and then they ask the next inevitable question. They'll say, well, how many Bibles do you need? And this is where my faith has always kind of, you know, come up against reality maybe, because I was afraid to put a number out there. I was afraid to say, this is how many Bibles we need, because I knew that number was going to be so big, and I was so little. And I would feel like a failure every time because I would never meet that goal. And so I would always say, we need more Bibles. 
I never wanted to put a number out there. Now, it was a couple of years ago. We had done about 5,000 audio Bibles in India through our ministry. And you had to realize, each audio Bible, I conservatively estimate, reaches about 10 people. Conservatively. So easily that year, we had about 70,000 people, maybe more, in fact, probably more, who had now access to God's Word because of what we did. And for a ministry that was dealing in hundreds of Bibles, hitting 5,000 was like epic. And so we celebrated that, and I finally asked that question that I did not want to ask. I looked at our staff and I said, okay, let's not go crazy, but given our networks, with our people that we work with, and the places that we work with, the languages that we worked with, what could you realistically do every year? And they said to me, 25,000. So I came back. I was like, I asked for it. So I came back to the U.S. and I started telling people, hey, they're like, what did you do last year? I said, 5,000. What are you doing this year? I said, 25,000. And in, people, including my own colleagues, would say, well, shouldn't you just maybe say 6,000 or 7,000? Like, let's not go crazy. Let's, that seems more realistic. And after a while, I just got so tired of answering that question. I just said, how about we go with a God-sized problem that demands a God-sized solution? Let's put it out there. And I had no strategy. I just knew that this is the number that God gave me. And so this group that asked, I was just kind of like, well, we're going with 25,000. It was like Easter Sunday, and, you know, everything was fine. But I have no idea how things are going to go. But I just say this incident because two days later, um, I'm still in Florida waiting for my wife and kids to join me. And I got a phone call. And it was from Atlanta, a ministry partner there. Actually, they're not partners. They were just a ministry. They, the, the call went like this. They said, hey, JP, um, we're from this particular organization in Atlanta, and we just got back from Israel-Palestine. We've been doing some work there. We really want to work in India, and your name has come up in your ministry. Um, could we work together? And I was like, sure, of course we'd like to work together. And they said, well, we want to start by sending you some audio Bibles. I was like, okay, that's great. And they said to me, how many Bibles do you need? And I was afraid. I was afraid to tell them 25,000 because I was afraid of them saying to me, whoa, 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 crazy talk. I'm just thinking of a few hundreds here. And yet I prayed about it and I said to them, honestly, we have a network right now that could distribute 25,000 audio Bibles. And they said to me, okay. And just like that. And they said to me one more thing. We want to do this every year. And just like that, my fear was contaminated by faith. Now, here's what I want to say before the story takes on. I'm very careful using this story because it's not, I don't want you to think that it's a story about, you know, asking God for something and God providing it. Um, This is a story about fear, my own fear, and how God's faith contaminated my fear. This is what the woman does in this chapter. She goes and has her fear tinged with faith, and it saves her life. In fact, um, I was just telling Brandon and Stephanie, I just got back from a trip to India last week, and uh, this trip was actually with that team that sent us the 25,000 audio Bibles, because now there's 
fields that are just exploding with a harvest, and we were there to go document those stories. Well, friends, here at Heartland, as you leave this morning, here's what I want you to remember. I want you to leave knowing that we worship a God who is kind to us in ways that are beyond our wildest comprehensions. And his kindness should inspire us to acts of kindness that we think is impossible. And secondly, we worship a God who invites us to name our fears. Name your fears so they in turn can be contaminated by faith. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.